Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Teresa Capellos. She is Associate Professor in Political Psychology at the University of Birmingham. She is also Director of the Institute for Conflict Cooperation and Security and past President of the International Society of Political Psychology. Her research focuses on the effective cognitive and motivational determinants of political judgments. And today we're going to expand a little bit more on the topics we've covered last time, for which I'll be leaving a link in the description box of this interview. So, Dr. Capellus, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, to everyone. It's, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me again. So, last time we talked a bit about uh, Resantima. So, could you please tell us again what it is about uh, from the perspective of political psychology and then perhaps we can get into the role it plays specifically in Islamic fundamentalism? What Rizintima is, is uh, not yet fully agreed on, so I can tell you what it does and through what it does I'll try to highlight how different scholars see it. Some scholars would see it as a, a complex emotional experience, others call it a complex emotion, an emotion with different angles. Others identify it as a mechanism. I'm one of those that has been arguing that Rizentima is a mechanism, but because it's a, it's a concept that tries to denote a particular psychological experience, it's, you know, all of these different conceptualizations just go against each other when they try to make sense of what it does. So how is it manifested? Resentiment has this really complex, affective, emotional, as we call it, profile. It blends together things that in the political experience, sometimes we see as separate, um, that we treat as independent. But with resentiment, we are forced or invited, depends on how you want to think about it, to consider them as a bundle. So what comes with resentiment or in resentiment is a strong sense of inefficacious anger. It can be motivated by envy or by shame. It, and it is expressed in a very particular way um, as outward aggression. Um, it comes with vindictiveness. It comes with lack of respect for others. It comes with vengeance and bitterness and a sense of victimhood. So, um, whereas resentiment, when we think when we think about it um, as a bundle, it helps us to make sense of this really complex um, profile of emotional experiences as as one together. Um, some people say it like a cauldron of emotions, just a lot, it's a big soup, a negative bubbling soup. Um, it's also powerless. So resentiment doesn't have the, 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 um, the movement that anger comes with. When you're angry, you are likely to, to go and do things. With resentiment, you're passive. So uh, an important distinctive characteristic of resentiment is, is, is passivity. And it's bitterness that is inefficacious, that it doesn't allow you that extra um, spark, spirit um, to implement social change. It comes with the grievance, the complaining, the frustration, the, um, the bitterness, but it does not get manifested 
uh, in a way that can facilitate a, a, a pro-social change. Its outcomes are usually antisocial. So that's what resentment, how resentment is felt. It, it's, it's a really complex experience. Um, we think, um, Miko Salmela and a few other colleagues of mine that I've been working with, that we treat it as a mechanism because what we see happening with resentment is that it starts from a particular affective profile, envy, shame, inefficacious anger, and when the process, this mechanism is at work, it does things that produce different emotional outputs. So you start with inputs and you end up with different outputs, all in the context of resentment. That's why we call it a mechanism. And it's a mechanism that doesn't require input. Once it starts, you don't need to feed it. It just kind of goes by itself in a very predictive predicted, predictable um, direction. You can anticipate which way it's going to go when someone is in the grip of resentment. One of the key processes is what we call transvaluation. The individual that is in resentment um, changes the value of the things that they want into something they don't want anymore. They devalue what is desired and they can create new values, new desires based on what they can have. This transvaluation also involves the self. They change the perception of the self from an inefficacious victim, a victim that cannot get things done, cannot change, into a morally righteous victim, a victim that is suffering because somebody else is harming them immorally right and but they have the right they have the right to maintain that victimhood identity because they are they are correct and um others are wrong um and and this is really very relevant because it allows us to see a transformation of the psyche of the individual in resentment going into resentment you're not the same person as the person that comes out of resentment. And that, that I think has significant implications for understanding politics where we very often think of the, the psyche of the individuals as stable, as constant. And that's why I think this mechanism is, is so interesting to examine. You can take it by, um, you can pick it up at its different stages in a paper that Miko Salmela and I published, which was on that theoretical conceptualization of resentment, we identified different stages of it that also helps us tap on it to see how early or advanced in the process an individual can be. But at the beginning of it, you see it very much manifested as this um, fable of uh, the Aesop's fable of the sour grapes, where the fox um, tries to reach something and gets constantly, repetitively, right? it's, a, it's, a, it's a chronic pattern, um, denied, rejected, failed. Um, and that cro constant chronic failure um, needs to be managed somehow. Usually it eats away your sense of self, right? It makes you feel less and less um, efficacious, competent, able to achieve. And that has, of course, negative, bitter, implications for the individual. So resentment can be seen as a mechanism that allows the psyche to maintain some, some balance, um, but it doesn't offer a 
as we say, it doesn't resolve the problem. It can give you a temporary solution then, but it doesn't resolve the, the reason for your grievance. So it eats you away. Um, in, in this paper with Miko, we describe it as a corkscrew, that once you engage with it, once you're in its grip, it it, it kind of twists deeper and deeper in your psyche. And the deeper it is, the more difficult to to get it, to get out of it, to, to, to manage to swim upwards, if you will, to get out of Resentima. And what happens when you're in Resentima? In its um, progressing state, you could see the presence of um, psychic defenses, like reaction formation, which is, I don't want this, uh, which is what I wanted, I'm better off without it. Yeah. Um, denial. That's not what I want. I'm better without it. Um, you could see this transvaluation, this change of the values of objects and the self. Um, and then as you progress in the more advanced stages, you see what we call lower order defenses, not, not adaptive defenses. Some scholars call them maladaptive because they don't they don't benefit in the long run, the individual, and they involve um, projection. So I'm all good, you're all bad, all my bad uh, is projected out. Right? Introjection, where I find someone that I see as perfect, and you can see the parallels in the political world, a perfect leader that is part of me, right? and, and that allows me to maintain that positive sense of self. Um, and splitting the world does not become an ambivalent place where there is some good and some bad that an individual that you meet or a political party or a political leader um, has strengths and weaknesses, but it's a world of um, perfection or absolute horrid failure. Right? So you are either a demon or an or an angel. The others are demons or angels. And this polarization in the way you see the world, we call it splitting, is a really um, difficult, well, it's an approach, but it does not allow you to engage with reality because reality requires that open mind of seeing your own weaknesses and also the strengths of others. Right? So it compromises, as we, we say, Reality testing, it doesn't allow you to be grounded in the present, not being able to manage the present. Um, and instead you seek an escape in a, in, in, in a place that is making you feel better in a way, but it's not aligned with reality. Um, and Resentima does other things too, to your social connections. It makes, uh, it, it can bring you together with other people that have, resentment, but then the connections, the social bonds between those individuals are shallow because they, they, they don't know who they themselves are. They have created a fake idea of the world, that fake idealization of another. So when they come together, they fail to learn from each other, they fail to improve from each other, um, and their bonds are very precarious. Um, some colleagues that study collective narcissism find that collective narcissists throw their own under the bus very quickly if their perception of their group is challenged or, or the leader is, is challenged. And we find similar findings um, 
among the people that we don't just identify as collective narcissists, but we are, we identify them as resentimentful collective narcissists. It was a long, <laughs> very long answer to your question. No, but it's it a was, really complex story. Yeah, it was very interesting because you covered there a lot of ground and really got into the nitty gritty of what resentment is, I think. Uh, and how does it manifest itself in the context of, for example, Islamic fundamentalism? Yeah, right. You asked me that at the beginning. So some of the work we have been doing is has been really interested in, in trying to see resentment in its social political contexts. And naturally, I work on populist politics and the challenges to democracy in, in, in West European um, and the US contexts. Yeah. But when you look at resentment as a psychological phenomenon, as an emotional experience, it doesn't make sense to just limit it in a particular geopolitical environment. You look for it elsewhere. So we have been trying to assess the presence of resentment in authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at environments where democratic politics is either in decline or challenged. Um, and we look at it at particular, I don't want to say ideologies, but I want to, it's, it's fundamentalist accounts of the world that also in, include Islamic fundamentalism. But it's not the only one. So um, colleagues have been looking at the two sides of resentment, far right and Islamic fundamentalism, as one coin that the more you spin it, the more you see this, you, the, you see its two faces that, that reinforce each other. So we could be talking about resentment in the context of Islamic fundamentalism, but also in the far right, because the emotional profiles, the experiences, the emotional experiences of the people that are in those spaces, um, ideologies, I'm not sure, schemas, um, are groups are very similar in their um, affective, in their emotional flavor. They share um, vindictiveness, they share that sense of moral victimhood, uh, moral righteousness, they um, have a sense of inefficacy, not for the ones that acted out, but the ones that acted out are the ones who have gone through the process. And one of the outcomes of resentment is this anger against the other. So you could see it um, being acted out. But when they are in resentment, in the process that it develops, um, you wouldn't see action. There's a point where you can almost expect the action to come after it has passed this advanced stage through the denial, through the splitting. So in a way, understanding Islamic fundamentalism and far right extremism as um, phenomena that can be understood by resentment, the, the emotional mechanism, allows us to pinpoint the changes, the transformations in the psyche of the individuals that are going through this process. It, we don't see it as a binary, you are or you're not, but we see it as a process by which you become, right? And that process of becoming we think comes with or through or in resentment. Um, and you don't start 
with the blind disregard of reality. You don't start with a splitting. You get there um, through after you have progressed through the initial envy, the initial shame, the initial inefficacious anger, that startup grievance that exists. Uh, rightfully so, sometimes imagined, but it's it's a felt grievance. And then you progress through the, as we call it, uh, higher order defenses, the more adaptive defenses. Sometimes if your sense of self is strong, you can engage in humor, uh, sublimation. You can find other ways to manage your frustrations that would not necessarily lead you to these maladaptive um, antisocial outcomes uh, that come at the end of resentment. So there are there are breaks that you can put in the process. The mechanism allows us to think of the breaks and also qualify the breaks without expecting them to be there for everybody. Somebody who starts with a low sense of self does not have the energy to keep fighting that frustration, the envy and the shame. They are more easily brought in. Their journey in resentment is faster. Right? Um, somebody who has a stronger sense of self, more sense of efficacy, the ability to sublimate, the ability to find other ways, humor, to humor it, um, to some extent can delay or even reverse the process of resentment, slip out of it, right? Find other ways um, to, to express and deal with their envy, their, their shame, their anger, their inefficacious anger. But sometimes, sometimes, not, not for everybody, when there isn't a way to come out at these initial stages, you start seeing the higher order uh, defenses and they eat you away as well. Um, because every defense that you use um, compromises your strength, doesn't usually halt the slide, but kind of you have to keep feeding it and you need resources to keep feeding it. So if you're starved for resources, if you're drained, again, you're going to be more easily sucked in. So for us, it's really important to follow that process, to see the mechanism unfold, to help us understand at what point um, do people surrender? I don't think they surrender because it's not a conscious surrender. It's kind of like a slipping in. Um, but at what point are they fixed in resentment? And then how can we understand their expressions, their antisocial expressions at the other end of it, what kind of flavor they have? And we've been struggling to try to understand also how to give alternatives to it. Can you reverse it? Right. Um, because we don't see it as a, a, as a psychologically favorable mechanism. We think it has its benefits, like everything. It has its benefits and it has its shortcomings. The benefit is it maintains the individual alive, right? Um, it allows them a way to exist um, that is probably consciously less painful for them than accepting the original grievance, mourning it, uh, moving on from it, finding other ways to release it, pro-social expressions. But if you don't have these opportunities, what you do. So it also gets us to start thinking about the opportunities at the early stages, creating societies, providing um, facilities, providing knowledge, providing civic strength for people to be able to, to do the 
the higher order sublimation humoring defenses to deal with the grievances rather than slip into resentment. So this also applies to populism, correct? It, it, can, it can apply to any political context um, that does not seek to directly address individual grievances. Um, people find themselves in pressurized political environments. We've had in Europe, um, so you know, the last 10 years we had financial crisis, right? We had um, the pandemics, we have another recession coming up now. Um, there's a war um, in our borders, I would say, but not so much in our borders anymore, just in Europe. So there is this there is this tensions, these frustrations, these anxieties, when they are experienced as envy, envious or shameful or um, make us angry, but we don't have a sense of being able to do something with that anger, right? And we hold it in. That's the environment where resentment can start taking over in society. So we, I've been discussing it as an individual level mechanism, but we also see it as a collective. It can take in uh, groups, it can take in whole societal structures, mm -hmm. um, contexts. So yes, po populism is a political narrative discourse or a way of conducting politics, if a mode of politics for political elites, political leaders that usually does not target actual uh, problems, but generates problems, imagined, creates problems that are easily harvested, used for electoral gain. Um, this notion of us, the people, and the elite, not much respect for science or knowledge, um, the power of the people, the will of the people that know better than the ones that govern us. It's a very superficial narrative. Um, some colleagues call it light ideology. I wouldn't use the word, I, the term ideology for it, but that's again, it's, it's a debate for the concepts. Um, ultimately, we all agree that light, that light superficial approach to actual political problems and its use for political gain does not address the conditions which result in these really painful emotions of envy, shame and inefficacious anger that can lead to resentment. So any political environment that does not deal with reality, mm -hmm. with the actual problems, but rather evades uh, the problems for short-term gain, creates long-term chronic frustrations that in our minds are resentmentful. Not resentful, but resentmentful. So it's, you could talk about populism, you can talk about authoritarian regimes, you can talk uh, about places where there is no democratic agency, where there's a lot of corruption. Um, Resentima is not just a problem for our decade. It has been studied by political philosophers the last 100 years. So you could say it's something that has been with us for a long time. Recognizing it is the first step to be able 
to do something about it. If we split it up in little bits and we say, oh, these people are just angry, these people are just frustrated, they act out, they are just narcissistic, right? We split up resentment in its components. They are morally righteous victims, um, they are powerless and that's why they are acting out. If we don't see it as what we think it is, this bundle of frustrated emotions, but other things as well, um, it, because it requires the process of changing your values, changing the values of what you desire, right? The, the transvaluation. So if we don't see it as a bundle, I think we don't do justice to uh, to its complexity and also we don't take the right steps forward to be able to deal with it effectively. Um, so we can slowly, I think, strengthen people's ability and collective's ability to, to not be gripped by it. So, um, yeah, and unfortunately nobody is, um, how can I say, uh, saved or um, immune. Um, immune is a good word, especially now in the context of the pandemic. Right? Um, coming out of it, we're a little bit more comfortable using it, but nobody is immune to resentment. If, if the social and the political conditions are not ones that allow dealing with um, real frustrations and problems, then you will see resentment arising. It can be economic crisis, it could be um, political crisis, it could be crisis of representation. Um, these things right. need to be dealt with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if resentment itself also applies in the specific context, but how can we make sense of phenomena like Brexit, for example? Phenomena like Brexit are so complex and, <laughs> and they go back so far back. We can talk about Brexit. Yes, we think resentment is, has been with us um, during the Brexit times. Um, the UK has always had, the UK electorate has always had this really ambivalent relationship with Europe mm -hmm. and in a way holding an ambivalent relationship with Europe is not bad. Um, the problem begins uh, when your relationship with Europe is split, then you don't see Europe as something that can bring you benefit but has some shortcomings, but you could see it as all bad, which is what happened with the pro-Brexit narratives, um, that splitting was characteristic in the pro-Brexit narratives. It, it was not the debate around the referendum. If you look at the content of the Remain um, campaign, was more ambivalent. They would recognize some limitations to being in Europe, but would also recognize the benefits of being in Europe, right? It was not an all good um, account. But if you look at the content of the Leave campaign, that was clearly all bad, right? It was all, we want out, we want our country back. We are all good, we want our benefits back and we want to, to get out because they, that organization, that institution is evil. So most people believed that, bought that, but there is something else with Brexit that goes on. It was a narrative, the Brexit narrative within the Conservative Party, the way it was promoted as we were heading towards the referendum, it was inevitably attached to the political ambitions of Boris Johnson, who saw this as an opportunity to gain power. Um, it was his ticket to uh, premiership. 
And so it was a situation where you have a populist narrative. You had Nigel Farage's also populist narrative for his own personal gains, multiple gains, um, capitalizing um, a very important political issue that fundamentally started from an ambivalent position where people could negotiate, discuss the good and the bad. And it's always healthy, as I said before, uh, when you deal with any political choice to be aware of the benefits and the shortcomings and make an educated, informed decision. But the decision was not informed at that point. It was all, you know, negative. So people move to that. If people start thinking in that split way, and they see themselves as victims, uh, morally righteous victims, then you have um, this particular mechanism that we call resentment being at work. Um, it, it's 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 interesting with the referendum because people also had a sense of power, um, whereas resentment is powerless as it is experienced. But at its outcomes, it can be transformed into antisocial anger. And what we saw at the outcome of it, so think of the process of discussing Brexit as a process in which resentment is brewing. And at some point, as we get close to the referendum, for many people, it had consolidated into a resentmentful position that was expressed as morally righteous anger that was powerful because they had the sense to vote. If there was no vote, in a way, the vote acted as a release, right? There's a, it's a pressure and it's building, think of a cook pot that it's locked in and it's building, it's being in the referendum, allow this release. Um, so th there was a positive function there too, regardless of the outcome, um, because people felt the sense that they could express um, what, they, what, what they were already thinking. Um, how informed their thinking was, whether it allowed them to oscillate between the positions of, you know, um, these ambivalent positions about Europe is something that I think we need to start thinking about. Because moving forward now, what again we see is that now we've been through Brexit and into Brexit basically for a few years, people start experiencing that what was promised to them was not delivered. And to a large extent, and they start feeling financially, a lot of people have been affected, um, small businesses, people who are doing um, import-exports with the, with the EU, um, trade deals have not been implemented uh, successfully. The British, British political scene has been in turmoil for a while, and somebody could say all of that has been because of Brexit and the pandemic and the way all of this was handled it had significant implications to British economy. So in this current environment now, if start if people start engaging with the pros and the cons without being afraid to think of pros and cons, without being afraid to release that split thinking, we could start hoping that the grip of resentment will ease because the more you challenge the split thinking, the more you engage in this ambivalence of being able to handle, to hold the, the pros, the pros of the things that you don't like and the cons of yourself, then you become more acute in understanding reality. Um, and then you can deal with your problems more effectively. It doesn't mean <clears throat> going back to the EU, although I know a lot of people would want that. Um, <clears throat> it's not the only option. The other option is to live where you are 
in a more productive, more effective more effective, more constructive, not productive, more constructive way, because your ability to deal with your imminent problems is enhanced by your reality testing. Um, if you keep your head in a hole, thinking that we're doing really well and the others are doing bad, and then, you know, at some point you're going to meet, I think, your end because you haven't really done anything to address the real problems out there. So yes, Brexit and resentiment. Unfortunately, I would say it would have been nicer to see the Brexit outcome. I, I don't want to do politics, so I don't want to discuss the outcome itself. But it would have been nice to, to, to look at the outcome as the result of a deliberative process where people have seriously considered the positives and the negatives. Um, and, and, and done that rather than being led by demagogues who used so much lying that that NHS bus ad was such a, an example of demagogy and and basically misleading the public for political gain. So if if we hadn't had that and it was a deliberative decision based on actual considerations, um, it would have been better regardless of the outcome. Um, but the way we got there, I think, was suboptimal. And the way we are living it is suboptimal. Um, because people are not grounded, people refuse to see uh, the harm that has been done, the cost that they have paid. And, and if they don't, mitigating moving forward, it's going to be really difficult, right? People prefer sometimes to live in their own little fiction of how the world is, where, again, this idea of victimhood is going to kick in again. The more the British economy suffers, the more the benefits that were promised are not delivered. Um, and now two years on, again, nothing uh, there, substantive for people to say they have gained. Um, the more this sense of victimhood prevails, becomes part of the British political psyche um, and it, it and if it becomes morally righteous victimhood then that's that's where you you have resentment and it's worse I would say right so that was about brexit specifically but how would you say effectivity is exploited during political campaigns it's a really good question because we have been looking so much at the role of emotions in political campaigns the last 40, 50 years now since um, the first questions and emotions in the American National Election Study were, were implemented because political scientists, political psychologists realize that there is value to that. But how is affectivity um, used for electoral gain? Um, it is important for us. I mean, the debate on emotions in politics started from uh, this distinction between uh, thinking and feeling, where scholars realized that if you want to be thinking about rational, effective decision making, you need to consider emotions. So for those of us studying political decision making um, and the process of political decision making, looking just at cognition, just at thinking, it was halfway, right? And not just halfway, but a compromise halfway because it thought it was looking at the whole way. So, you know, not only are you missing half of it, but you are misrepresenting how the processes are um, implemented. So 
we started looking at emotions with a very positive light, thinking that will help us gain insight into how people make decisions. And it's good for us to know um, that the more we know, the more we understand it. It's a scientific approach, the more we can test, the better. Sure. In the process of studying this, you don't want to find that somebody's emotions are exploded for political gain. You want to find um, the favorable outcome of deliberative politics is that people have feelings about politics, otherwise they wouldn't be engaged, right? They would be really disengaged if they felt nothing. So you want people to have strong feelings, you want people to be involved, that's the first benefit of emotionality. But you also want to feel that you want you want to see in your studies that they understand how they feel and they put those feelings to work for them, right? They are aware of their positive reactions towards someone, their negative reactions towards someone, and they um, or or issues. When I say someone, I mean any political object, not just political personalities, but political personalities too. And then consider these um, alongside other considerations that they have, so they can make a fuller. Um, judgment, the same way we make judgments in our everyday life. That's that's the way, that's the ideal, right? That's what the political psychologist would like to see. What you end, what we end up seeing a lot in our studies of emotionality is emotional polarization. It's the uh, people constantly reporting they feel one way, always chronic, chronic anger, chronic frustration, chronic fear, right? Those chronic manifestations of, of emotional states are not very healthy in a way because they lock you in a particular frame of mind um, or emotional frame, however you want to put it. Um, so we see a lot of that. We see a lot of the inability to recognize the, um, the, the bad feelings in one and the good feelings in the other. Um, and we see this also in our studies of prejudice and tolerance um, that have phenomena that prejudice has gone up, tolerance has gone down. They go together because tolerance is your ability to tolerate things you don't like. It starts from the assumption that you're not going to like everything. Nobody can like everything. Um, so if you start thinking about tolerance, you immediately put yourself in an ambivalent position. You know that there are some things you don't like. However, you allow them to exist. You allow yourself to exist alongside them. That's the fundamental um, definition of tolerance. We see less of that. People, because they engage in splitting, emotional splitting, they don't want to be tolerant of the things they don't like. They want the things they don't like to disappear, right? So they want to do away with the others that annoy them. They want to have a homogenous society of everybody being as perfect as them, right? They are perfect. Everybody around them should be equally perfect. And the less perfect people or the very imperfect people very often they're portrayed like, should be kept out, right? So you also see this bordering, this, this securitization in a way you people feel threatened when they meet somebody that is not the same as them, not because of the similarity, but because they have attributed goodness, right? Angel status in their group and uh, demon status in the other. So we see a lot of that. Um, so the study of of emotionality in politics can give you the flavor of the, uh, where democracy is at the moment. Um, if you see ambivalence in emotional reactions, if you see this variety, if you see the intensity, that we think is beneficial to democracy. You start worrying when there isn't an emotional reaction, when people are apathetic, they just don't care. Um, they're worn out 
that's another thing where there's trauma in society and people are just, they are not able to feel because they have to preserve whatever strength they have. And, mm-hmm. and that trauma is manifested as just like apathy, disengagement, um, deadening of emotions. So if you see this, you worry. And also if you see the emotional splits, you worry. They're all good, all bad, all angry all the time, all happy all the, all happy all the time, which, you know, in your everyday life, you would get a feeling that there is something uh, not regular here. Right. It's something unusual. So that's what we are witnessing. A lot of that emotional affective polarization, a group of scholars, um, colleagues of mine are looking at, uh, they label it affective polarization. It basically matches this, 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 this you know, you're bad, I'm good. Um, I, I hate you, I like us. It's this split that in our study of emotionality, I think starts ringing a little bit of a danger bell where we have to pay a little bit closer attention. Um, And that's why I always say it is our responsibility um, in academia to look carefully at the phenomena that we study and try to see, okay, compartmentalizing, breaking up, looking at anger only, at fear only, looking at prejudice only, at victimhood only, collective narcissism on its own, has its benefit, it allows us to understand the concept, the phenomenon itself. But if we want to understand society and the way things are played out in our everyday politics, we need to step back, take it all in and see if there are mechanisms or structures that allow us to make sense of processes. And I think that's what resentment does, allows you to put things together that fit together in real political life, but we have spent so much time studying them independently that we have forgotten to integrate them. Right. Right. Uh, So for the last part of the interview, I would like to ask you a bit about the role of trust and also institutional reputation. So first of all, what would you say is the role that trust plays in politics and society? How important is it? So let me give you a little analogy from our own lives, our personal lives that will help us, you know, highlight, bring the point home without really calling it anything. Because again, definitions about what trust is are so complex and debated and there's no verdict. There's different people say it's cognitive, other people say it's effective, it's, it's messy. Um, In our everyday lives, when we are born, one of the fundamental experiences we have is trust. If we trust our caregiver, we can, because we are being looked after, we feel safe, we feel secure, right? Our trust develops Mm -hmm. and the more, you know, and if we trust our caregiver, we can receive what the trust giver, the caregiver has to offer. And it, it's a mutually beneficial relationship that helps us grow and, you know, physically grow, emotionally grow. Um, trust is also based on our ability to empathize with the other. If we know what, if we can understand what the other feels towards us, we trust them. So it's a complex experience that is based on our ability to relate. And it's the fundamental, um, the core of our social existence with others, mm-hmm. right? So anytime any individual doesn't live, cannot exist by itself, 
we exist in the presence of others, we grow in the presence of others, and we can be harmed in the presence of others. We can be uh, injured in the presence of others psychically, psychologically. So take this now and put it in the political world. In a political world, individuals don't exist by themselves. They exist in the presence of others, their uh, groups, their neighborhoods, their um, affiliations, the broader ideological groups like parties that they associate with, they also have a relationship with those that are helping them, nurturing them, looking after their needs. The political leaders that we elect are the ones whose responsibility is this, to look after and nurture um, us, right? Mm -hmm. Feed us in a way, dress us, uh, educate us, um, and let us grow our societies. So th this trust relationship is fundamental for both the one who seeks the feeding and the one who's doing the feeding, right? So both political uh, representatives, elected officials, and the public um, is good to have trust in each other so this can work, this growth can be implemented. If, la if trust is failing, either from the top down, because there is no trust in the public, or there is no appreciation, no empathy, no not paying attention to what the public needs, which we see a lot these days. Mm -hmm. um, if you have, let's call it um, a political parent, right, um, who is only interested in his or her personal gain, professional gain, material gain, um, as a parent who only cares about work or cares about um, clothes, cars, you know, uh, objects around them, but they don't pay attention to their family, to their little ones. Um, this self-absorption with gain, this very narcissistic preoccupation from the top, from elites, can result, uh, can, can be manifested as lack of empathy, which even if it doesn't, even, even if there is trust from the public to begin with, it erodes trust. It, it's a way trust because as an individual you can only maintain trust when you you have this reciprocal relationship or it becomes misattributed trust. You can have, you can be trusting someone for the wrong reasons and that is not what, that's gullibility, that's not really uh, what trust is about. So um, if you think about this in the political relationships towards institutions, organizations, elites, leaders, you can see how fundamental trust is for maintaining a healthy democratic um, family, right? Experience. And mm -hmm. when you, when it's missing, things start going the wrong way. You start develop. We start developing. All of us. This very individualized, broken apart, and injured, I would say, accounts of political engagement, where we don't feel heard, we don't feel seen, we don't feel looked after, we feel abused or neglected, right? All of that. Um, uh, and, and, and that, that does not uh, sit, you know, that, that can never work alongside trust. That's always there when trust is gone or going. Um, and that's not a good sign for democratic politics. So going back to your question, how trust links to evaluations of political institutions or leaders, this is what you asked me, yeah? yeah. Um, it, 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 it is the way 
we as citizens or we as political elites have been invited to operate in the body politic the same way we would be operating in a family setting or in our interpersonal relationships. All you need to see, all you need to do is observe relationships where trust is absent to see how they fail and they can create really painful um, outcomes for everybody involved sooner or later, you know, um, at different ratios and at different times. But um, with lack of trust, you cannot have a society that cares for each other. And and that's that's it. But let, bring me closer to where you want me to go, because uh, I think uh, I digressed. Uh, no, 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 not at all. Um, about institutional reputation, so just ah. one, yeah, just one last question about that. So, how are they formed and updated? Institutional reputations is so interesting. So again, there is a big debate out there about whether institutions uh, have reputations. Who are the reputation holders? Who are the audiences that assess them? Do institutions have one reputation or multiple reputations based on the again the stakeholders or the 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 audiences? Mm -hmm. um, but let's let's start from the basics. Okay, so when we try to make sense of any object, um, starting from individuals, very often we rely on what we call we we create an image, we create a, a heuristic, a stereotype. If you want, mm -hmm. there's all of these are different words that point to the same thing, a shortcut. Um, a cognitive and an effective emotional and cognitive shortcut that helps us make sense of some something. That's because we cannot every time assess information very, very carefully, so we rely on the shortcut. Now, organizations um, like political leaders as well have reputations. Um, they cultivate them. They want to put their name forward as somebody who is competent, reliable, honest and empathetic. These are the four components, competence, integrity, um, reliability, uh, warmth and leadership are the four dimensions that we use to study both political uh, leadership reputations and institutional reputations. And these reputations, funnily enough, are not just cognitive, but they are related. I'm not going to surprise you. I study emotions related to emotions. So um, the competence reputation instills or inspires confidence yeah and the efficacy um, let's say the um, honesty integrity reputation um, inspires the sense of reliability trust mm -hmm. right so it's good for us to be thinking of reputations not just images cognitive impressions we have, but also what they make us feel. And very often the study of reputation suggests that we feel those things before we know what they are based on. So you can feel trust towards a leader that you think is honest, but you feel the trust before you recall from memory, because emotions are faster. Um, than the recall of the actual information. So you feel the trust, you recall the trustworthiness information. You feel confident and you recall the competence information. So the emotion and the um, the, the trait attribution, as we call it, or the, the, the trait evaluation go together. So what do they do? 
how do we use these shortcuts once we understand how we form them? Um, they help us make sense of institutions. They also make us help us make sense of the decisions of these institutions because we hold them to a particular standard. If we know that an institution is both competent and um, reliable and pathetic, we would expect their policies, uh, their recommendations to align with that call it style, that image, that reputation. Um, and then that feeds also our own emotional reaction along mm -hmm. these dimensions. Um, the same for political leaders, right? If this is their reputation, then we anticipate. What happens when what we anticipate is not happening? We usually see that a strong reputation, strong positive reputation gives you a cushion of support. Some of the work that I've done many years ago with political scandals and leaders was showing that uh, political leaders with a competence reputation fall a little less hard um, when they are engaged in a political scandal because of that little cushion that they have initially. Um, whereas the impact of the same scandal on somebody that doesn't start with that competence reputation is, is harder. Right? They fall faster. They, they hit the floor harder. Um, so that's that's important. Also, it, the reputations also are very much linked to expectations of utterances, what we call accounts. What do we expect a political leader to say or an institution <clears throat> to, to, to express when they are in hot water, when they are in trouble? We expect them to say something to justify what they've done and why that usually sits alongside their reputation. Take Boris Johnson, for example, when because he has this reputation of somebody who is not particularly competent, but he he is somebody who he messes things up, right? But he has this reputation of being messy, but almost empathetically messy, yeah, mm -hmm. um, funnily messy. When a scandal happens, he waffles and people don't really pay that much attention. They go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. It fits his reputation. We wouldn't have expected anything else. It's fine. But if, so that has given him, similar to Reagan in the US after many, many years now, that reputation of the Teflon premier, uh, the Teflon uh, prime minister, that nothing sticks. Why? Because the reputation is one that mm, nothing's going to stick anyway, just anything goes, right? But if you have a political leader with a reputation of integrity or high competence, and they find themselves in that place, um, and they say they give an account, they provide um, an excuse, a justification, a denial um, of what they've, they have done to justify it. People hold them at that standard, right? And they can either survive it or not survive it based on what they said and how it links to the reputational standards that they were held on uh, when this transgression or policy failure happened. The same happens for organizations when we, we that's why we look at how they respond when they're in crisis. If they're in trouble, we, we like to pay attention to what they say, um, the statements they issue to see how that fits with their reputation and the impact this has on their stakeholders and their audiences. Right? And does the initial emotional reaction or um, image that somebody was holding um, giving them a little bit of a benefit? In, in how they are approached. So 
anytime we, we want to make sense of the political world, we resort in those heuristic shortcuts. It's a smart way to make sense of political reality, but like every smart shortcut, we miss something, right? We miss the complexity. And every time you rely on something fixed as a, as a reputation, um, you can miss the nuances or fail. Now, that's another thing. Um, if you were just taking in as a citizen, as an audience, information as it happens, and you constantly update your tally, your reputational tally of somebody adequately, uh, they would say, okay, this is the perfect, you know, the golden spot of political learning. And you, you have a starting point, you constantly updated it. But this is not how we learn. We know we have selectivity biases, so we avoid exposing ourselves to information that we don't agree with to begin with. So if there's somebody we like, we are un, not as likely to come across negative information about them because we just don't want to hear it. So it doesn't update our tally. Reality does. I mean, the reality is different, but our tally remains biased. Mm -hmm. um, so we have these selective exposure issues and we have attention issues as well um, again not every bit of information comes the same way we know that negative information matters a lot so if somebody if there's somebody that we don't like and we come across uh, a negative piece of information about their reputation we downgrade their reputation much faster than we would if there was somebody we like all of these biases and how we make sense of the world come with the benefit that we can make sense of the world. Otherwise, it would be very chaotic and difficult. But as I said before, there's always a trade-off between the shortcut and the detail, right? Right. And the accuracy. So the accuracy, how, how accurate you can be in your judgment and how close to reality that is, and how quick you can be, how efficient you can be in making that judgment. Great. So, Dr. Capellus, let's end on that note then. Uh, I will also be leaving, as I said at the beginning, a link to our first conversation in the description box of this interview. And apart from that, where can people find your work on the internet? Oh, um, on my uh, university webpage at the University of Birmingham, there is a, a page. Um, like all academics, I am not as good as updating it, but Google Scholar these days is our friend. If you put my name down, you could see all my articles and you can cite them, you can uh, criticize them, you can use them uh, and so on. Um, most of my work is published on academic journal articles, so if uh, people have access through libraries, they can get it there. Uh, increasingly, we're moving towards what we call open science. Mm -hmm. So uh, these articles are accessible uh, for non-expert audiences. And, and I want to feel that we're writing in a way that can be also engaging to not just political scientists, but all interested citizens who want to learn a little bit and reflect a little bit about how they make sense of politics, which is what political psychology is about. But, but I have to say thank you for having me. It has been such an enjoyable uh, double experience. Maybe, I hope, we can do it again in the future. As more work comes out, there will be always really interesting things to talk about. No, of course, I would definitely love to have you back on somewhere in the future. And I really love your work. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ricardo. It is always a pleasure. 
Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Riccalania, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Wo Weingarder, Beckenberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegar, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zuc, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Aslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, JW, João Oira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dejda Araújo, Romain Roach, Dermitri Gregoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, John Linares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, Sunny Smith and John Wisman. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Caetano, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis Francis, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.